0: Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 4. Today we're talking about Episode 22, Restless, where after the battle with Adam, Buffy and her friends are attacked in their dreams and they meet the cheese man. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com, where you can find information about writing, publishing, and storytelling. As to Restless, in particular, today I'll talk about dreams as a vehicle for story, whether there's an overall plot structure here, and how this episode both serves as a coda for Season 4 and foreshadows the rest of the series. There won't be any spoilers, though, until the end, and I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Restless aired the first time on May 23, 2000, and it was written and directed by Joss Whedon. There also is on the DVD a commentary by Whedon, which I will share some highlights from. I did my breakdown of the episode, first watched it, outlined it, and then I listened to the DVD commentary. I'll cover the episode the same way with the DVD commentary at the end, but before the spoilers and foreshadowing. Right away, we know as viewers that this is a different type of Buffy episode because it starts with the credits. There's no cold open, that scene that usually comes before the credits and sometimes is less than a minute. It's usually a very quick scene that brings us into the story. Here, we just go right to the credits. We do start out with some opening conflict that typically is the conflict that draws the reader in and sometimes relates to the main plot, sometimes not. Here, the main plot, I see as the one through line through the dreams or the key through line, which is that our friends are being stalked and ultimately attacked. And this opening conflict Relates to it very indirectly. So we're at Buffy's house, and as Riley heads out the door, she asks if he's sure he'll be all right. And he tells her it's just a debriefing. The military's not going to make him disappear. And the debriefing was mentioned in the last episode. Those guys in suits talked about they would have to debrief the military personnel. Riley also reassures Buffy they're not trying to pin anything on him, that Graham and a lot of other initiative guys testify that Riley is the reason that they are alive. So we do find out from that that Graham survived. When Riley says he might even get an honorable discharge, Giles points out, in exchange for his silence, no doubt, and Riley agrees and says it helps to have the inside scoop on the initiative's own bay of mutated pigs. So this is such a great example of what the show does so well, which is to give us exposition in the form of minor conflict. And we get both reminders about what happened before, but information about Graham being alive, about Riley's status with the military. We now know he probably isn't going to be court-martialed, though that was raised in a previous episode. And we find out that he, at least, is not too worried. Willow says, it's like you're blackmailing the government in a patriotic way. Xander appears with popcorn, very proud that he made it, though he admits he pushed defrost, not popcorn, on the microwave. But he says Joyce was there in the clinch. Riley tells Joyce it was nice meeting her, and Joyce responds, it was nice meeting you, finally. Finally. And then after he leaves, Joyce says to Buffy, did you notice how poignantly I said finally? And Buffy says no and walks away. So there's a little bit more conflict and exposition there because we find out Buffy has not brought Riley to meet Joyce before. Joyce declines Giles' invite to join them for a video fest. She can't believe they're not all exhausted. And Giles says they all feel too wired to sleep. It was a very powerful spell. Everyone agrees on that. Xander advocates for watching Apocalypse Now, but tells the others, don't worry, he has plenty of, quote, chicken British guy flicks, too, end quote, that should last them all night. At 3 minutes 10 seconds in, he pops in a videotape, the FBI warning about copying it shows, and we cut to all our friends passed out asleep in the living room, and then we cut to commercial. We come back at 3 minutes 22 seconds in and the camera zooms in on a sleeping Willow. Willow's dream starts with Tara saying she thinks it's strange and maybe they should worry, quote, that we haven't found her name, end quote. And Willow says, who, Miss Kitty? And we get a shot of the kitten and Tara says, you would think she'd let us know her name by now. I find it fascinating that this is the first dialogue in any of the dreams because we're going to go on in the episode and meet the first slayer whose name is never spoken in this episode and in fact we're told she doesn't have a name we close up on tara's face neck and shoulders which are bare willow though is dressed and she's wearing a yellow t-shirt with a design on it and a beaded necklace and a string bracelet And Willow says she's not worried because she never worries here. But Tara warns Willow that Willow doesn't know everything about Tara. And I see this as a callback to that episode, Goodbye, Iowa, where they were hunting for a demon and did a spell. But Tara, unknown to Willow, put the sand under the bed during the spell and the spell did not work. And we never found out why that was so here is another hint that there's something about tara that she is not sharing and then at four minutes 34 seconds in tara says they will find out you know about you willow says she doesn't have time to think about that she has homework to finish But she can be a little late for class, and the camera pans back, and we see that Willow is painting or doing calligraphy on Tara's back, and there is writing there. So just a pause to say 4 minutes 34 seconds is about 10% through the story, through the episode, which is where we normally get our story spark or inciting incident that sets the main plot rolling. That is coming just a little bit later, but I do find it interesting that right there, Tara says they will find out, you know, about you, which sets off Willow's internal conflict in this stream. Tara points out that Willow hasn't taken drama before and she might miss something important if she's late, but Willow doesn't want to leave the room. It's so bright out there and she opens the curtain and we see the desert is outside the window. And Willow adds, and there's something out there. And now for the first time, we know that something is after our friends. And at 5 minutes, 25 seconds in, we see something or someone moving just beyond the stark plants in the desert. So that I see as the story spark for that main through line of whatever it is that will attack each of these characters. We also get a shot of the kitty uh, with sort of ominous sound effects as it moves, its footfalls pounding and echoing. Now we cut to Willow. She's in the hall at school. She passes Xander and Oz, and it's really fun to see him again, even briefly. And later, we'll see Principal Snyder as well in Xander's Dream. Oz tells her drama's a tough course. As Willow opens her locker, they talk about Willow doing spells with Tara. The bell rings, and Willow says she's going to be late and walks off. And Xander says to Oz, sometimes I think about two women doing a spell, and then I do a spell by myself. Oz gives him a raised eyebrow look. And and so here I will throw in something from Whedon's commentary. He said he just couldn't resist this joke, even though Willow is not there for it. So it really shouldn't be in her dream. I feel like it kind of works because one, I've I've certainly had dreams where I am not present during part of them. I'm just watching, but also it goes to that idea that, that Willow senses that this is kind of how Xander sees her and Tara. But I agree with Whedon in a lot of ways this fits more with Xander's dream. Nice of me to agree with the creator of the whole show, right? I'm I'm sure he's thrilled that uh, that I approve of his comment. At six minutes, six seconds in, Willow is really distraught because she enters backstage and everyone is in costume they've got makeup on Harmony is there, her hair's in pigtails and she says how exciting it is doing this first production she can't wait until her scene with Willow, she hugs Willow but then she says don't step on my cues Willow is so confused Buffy is there in a black dress with flapper hair and she rushes over to tell Willow her whole family is there in the front row quote and they look really angry A nice callback to Nightmares, the episode where everyone had nightmares and Willows was being an opera singer and being thrust on stage. Riley tells Willow, grinning, that she showed up late or she'd have a better part. He says he's cowboy guy, which clearly thrills him and he is dressed as a cowboy. Buffy tells Willow her costume is perfect, no one will know. An echo of Tara's comment about people finding out about Willow, and Willow says costume, and Buffy responds, you're already in character. Oh, I should have done that. Willow complains that they haven't even rehearsed, how can they put on a production, and Harmony says maybe some people haven't. Willow asks if it's Madame Butterfly making a reference to that Nightmares episode and says, quote, because I have a whole problem with opera, close quote. Giles calls everyone together, which reminds me of the backstage scene in The Puppet Show season one when he was running the talent show. He gives them a pep talk. Willow notices again that something or someone is moving behind them. Giles tells them it's all about hiding, not acting. The audience wants to find them, strip them naked, and eat them alive. Harmony is making fang faces and noises over his shoulder, which annoys him, and he struggles to find the word for props, and Harmony says props, and he tells her no, and Riley says props, and he says yes. He also says Willow needs to stop stepping on everyone's cues, and it'll be the best production of Death of a Salesman ever. At 8.28, everyone keeps talking, but the sound cuts out, so there's just silence as Willow watches. Then she turns away, and this bald man steps in front of her and says he's made a little space for the cheese slices, and he shows her American cheese laid out on a table, which made me think of how Buffy likes cheese, and that's what Willow told Riley about Buffy. And then Riley offered buffy cheese all of this is very dreamlike shifting from scene to scene the way there are cuts in the sound and there are elements of willow's daily life but they're all jumbled and don't quite make sense now willow walks between heavy curtains it's almost like a maze but this very quiet space behind the noise and uh, the rushing around with the production She finds Tara, who is dressed now, and Willow is very upset about the drama class and says, why is there a cowboy in death of a salesman anyway? And that something's following her. And what should she do? She goes on to talk about not knowing her lines. And Tara tells her the play is not the point. And then we cut to the play where Riley talks to Harmony, who's holding milk pails. And all of the acting in this is a very stylized, very loud, big gestures type of stage acting. And Riley says he's looking for a man, a salesman. Tara tells Willow, Quote, everyone's starting to wonder about you, the real you, end quote. And she won't be able to help Willow if they find out. Willow wants to know what's after her. We cut to the play again. Harmony cries in the background as angry flapper Buffy berates Cowboy guy about him and about men generally saying that they are all groin, no brain, three billion of you passing around the same worn out urge, men with your sales. It's really fun watching Sarah Michelle Geller do this type of acting. And Whedon said in the commentary that he knew that she would be great at it. Willow is breathing hard. Tara now has disappeared and an arm with a knife thrusts through the curtains Willow ducks, runs, and gets slashed with a knife, but Buffy grabs her and pulls her out of that curtained area and into an empty high school classroom. She says Willow must have done something for whatever it is to be after her, and Willow responds, no, I never do anything. I'm very seldom naughty. Buffy also tells her the play's over. Why is she still in costume? And Willow says, okay, still having to explain wherein this is just my outfit. Buffy, impatient, tells her, everyone already knows, so take it off. And when Willow won't, at 11 minutes, 52 seconds in, Buffy pulls at Willow's shirt. We hear tearing. Buffy sits down in a classroom that's now completely full, and Willow stands at the front, very season one Willow. She has her long hair. She's wearing tights, a long sleeve collared shirt, under a corduroy jumper, Harmony asks if everyone's clear on this now and there are lots of giggles. Oz leans close to Tara and whispers, I tried to warn you. And Anya says it's like a Greek tragedy. Willow delivers a book report on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's an obvious connection to Willow's magic, but I also love it because as a kid, that was my favorite book, one of my favorite memories. We had a substitute teacher for, I want to say, first grade, and uh, while our teacher was out on maternity leave, and she read every day from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and it was just my favorite, favorite part of school. But uh, Xander is not impressed, and he says, oh, who cares? Now we get to the climax of Willow's dream. As she's saying, the book has many themes. Someone attacks from the side, and Buffy and the others just watch very calm. We can't quite see who is attacking Willow, but she screams, and then her face seems to desiccate. And we cut to Willow on the couch in real life, gasping for air. And that's at 12 minutes, 49 seconds in. So I'm not sure when I watched the first time through if I realized that the thing that Willow was afraid of being found out was that she was really still her high school self. I feel like once I knew that, it seemed more obvious and it was skewed throughout the season. Willow's awkwardness with Veruca and feeling like she doesn't measure up her Anger and her jealousy, understandable jealousy, that Oz, not just that he slept with Faruka, but she says something like, You wanted her, like in an animal way, not like you want me. And then, of course, Oz leaving, and we had. Percy's girlfriend calling Willow a nerd and Willow saying, hey, dating a musician, or I was. So these fears about still being that girl from high school and her lovers, Oz and Tara realizing it and making fun of her. So this is right around in a more traditional buffy episode that we would see what i think of as that one quarter twist that comes from outside the protagonist spins the story in a new direction and raises the stakes so we're a bit past the one quarter mark but i don't think it is a mistake that that is where we shift from willow's dream to xander's dream and this is all outside our character's perspective and and control so it does come from outside of them if we see them all as a group as the protagonist does it raise the stakes maybe in the sense that the attack on Xander the way the attack is carried out will be more violent than on Willow and now we know two of our core characters are at risk. At 12 minutes, 58 seconds in, we return from the commercial. Willow is still gasping. Xander wakes up and asks if he missed anything. Giles is eating popcorn. Buffy's awake, too, and tells him just a bunch of massacring, referring to the movie. And on the television set, a soldier in the jungle tells his men to keep going. So full disclosure, I never saw Apocalypse Now, so I am certain I will miss some references to it. Giles says he feels Apocalypse Now is overrated, and Buffy offers Xander some corn, and Xander says butter flavor, and Buffy says new car smell. And this is what told me the first time through that we are already in Xander's dream, not in between the dreams. Xander sees Willow gasping and asks, what's her deal? And Buffy says, big faker. A fun reference to how Willow feels in her dream. Giles says he's beginning to understand this now. It's all about the journey, isn't it? He's staring at the movie, but I think this also applies to the episode. Xander heads upstairs to use the bathroom, but Joyce appears in her bedroom doorway. She's wearing a red nightgown, red lipstick looking very glamorous. And Xander says, hey, Joyce, Mrs. Summers. She tells him his friends all left a while ago. And Xander says he should go catch up. She suggests a man's always after conquest. And he claims he's a conquistador. Joyce says, you sure it isn't comfort? And Xander responds, I'm a confortador also. Joyce says she knows the difference. She's learned about boys. And Xander says that's cool about her. Joyce asks if he'd like to rest for a while, and the camera pans to her bed. He says yes, he's just going to the bathroom first, and she tells him not to get lost. We do have some listener comments this time on the Yoko factor. On Twitter, P.M. Ray commented about the title of the episode that the other way it plays in on this, though it might just be my interpretation, is the initiative. Colonel McNamara seems to view Buffy as Riley's Yoko, where he's been led astray. It also adds meaning and context to Spike's info dump to Adam on Yoko Ono. And I agree on that. I think we definitely have a theme there of characters seeing someone else as being at fault when someone they care about does something they don't like. In this case, Forrest cares deeply about Riley and he blames Buffy for breaking up what Forrest calls the family. He thinks of the initiative as Family. So I love that observation. Elaine Lipson commented on the Facebook page about the song Giles is playing. She said FYI, the song Giles is playing is free bird, not free as a bird. And it's one of the most well-known songs in rock and roll history and also the subject of many jokes because of its anthem status for so many people. See the legacy section of the Wikipedia entry. So thank you so much on that. Um, I was familiar with the song but I didn't realize what significance it has. And Roberta Lipp on Twitter, also about the Buffy and the Art of Story episode on The Yoko Factor, commented, Another great episode explaining why an almost great episode was not a great episode. Totally agree about the title, or honestly, it could have been boiled down to somebody saying something like, Hello Yoko at some point or Giles singing a Beatles song. That was in response to my comment that I wasn't sure we needed that whole discourse from Spike about Yoko Ono. So I loved getting those contrasting views about that section. One last comment. This is about today's episode, Restless, and comes from patron of the podcast, Steve, who just says, worst Buffy episode So with that, we'll go back to Restless. In the bathroom, Xander unzips, but he freezes when he realizes a bunch of initiative doctors and soldiers are watching, and he says he'll find a different bathroom. The door leads first to the hall and then to Xander's basement. The door to the first floor rattles, and there's pounding on the door, and Xander says, that's not the way out. We cut to a brightly lit playground. Buffy sits cross-legged in a sandbox and Spike and Giles are both dressed in suits and they're swinging on the swings. And Spike says, Giles is going to teach him to be a watcher. And Giles says, Spike's like a son to me. And Xander responds, that's good. I was into that for a while, but I got other stuff going on. And he watches an ice cream truck across the street where he is handing out ice cream to kids. And then our Xander says he has to be with the moving forward. He also asks Buffy if she's sure she wants to play there. It's a pretty big sandbox. And the camera pans back, and we see she's now sitting cross-legged in the desert. Xander tells her she can't protect herself from some stuff. And Buffy says, I'm way ahead of you, big brother. Xander responds, brother. This, to me, fits this brother reference because Buffy is the one woman in the dream who isn't presented in a sexualized way. I guess Anya is not either, but they are clearly having a romantic relationship. So Buffy is the only one who doesn't fit in that realm in this dream so maybe Xander has started to see her less as Buffy who he has a crush on and more as Buffy his friend at least in the dream. Ice cream truck Xander watches as Spike and Giles swing higher and higher. Giles keeps encouraging Spike and our Xander stands there but he's looking at Buffy in the sandbox. Then we switch to the ice cream truck Xander sits behind the wheel, Anya's next to him, and she asks if he knows where he's going. So we'll have this language repeated quite a bit in the dream. It's clearly a big theme for him. Then she tells him she's thinking about getting back into vengeance. She misses it, and they argue a bit about it. And Xander says, society has rules and borders and an end zone. He hears some laughter from the back of the truck and Willow and Tara are there both wearing tight clothes and bright lipstick and they say they find him interesting and he says he's going places and Willow responds, I'm way ahead of you. And Xander says, is that right? And Willow says, watch this. And the camera cuts away the second before she and Tara kiss to Xander watching them and then Tara invites him to join them. At 19 minutes, 36 seconds in, Anya tells him to go on. She's figured out how to steer by gesturing emphatically, and she makes hand movements as if she's steering, and he goes into the back. For some reason, I just love that moment with Anya, and and she's so serious about her mimed steering of the truck. Rather than Tara and Willow, though, when Xander climbs in the back of the truck, he finds himself in the basement again. And there's more doorknob rattling and pounding. And Xander says, I know what's up there. I feel like this could be a sort of midpoint, at least for Xander. So usually at the midpoint of a well-structured story, we see the protagonist make a commitment, throw caution to the wind, or suffer a major reversal. And for Xander, I think realizing, again, he ended up in the basement. The first time is just part of the dream but now it's oh here I am again after he said I'm going places in terms of the overall plot structure I'm not sure that we have a midpoint I'll get to that uh, when Xander's dream ends Xander now sees the cheese man that ball guy and he holds out a plate with cheese slices and tells Xander they will not protect him Xander rushes away. Now he's in the school hallways. There's a green filter over everything, and there's very discordant music. Giles tells Xander it's because of what they did, and the others have gone ahead. And he tells Xander, listen carefully, that is, life may depend on it. Xander needs to. But then Giles is speaking in French, including calling Xander an idiot in French. Anya appears, but she too speaks French, and Xander is so confused. They drag him along and the dream morphs into a scene from Apocalypse Now and Xander is in the jungle And then I got this from Wikipedia because, again, never saw the episode, but I, I figured this scene must relate to that. So Wikipedia says, Xander next finds himself in a reenactment of the apocalypse now scene between a captive Captain Benjamin Willard and Colonel Walter Kurtz, with Principal Snyder as Kurtz. Xander takes this opportunity to say how glad he is Snyder got eaten by a giant snake. And when Snyder asks where he's headed, Xander says, says he's supposed to meet Tara and Willow and maybe Buffy's mom. Xander's on his knees this whole time. Snyder tells him his time is running out. But Xander says he's just trying to get away. There's something he can't fight. Snyder asks if he's a soldier. Xander says he's a comfortador. And Snyder tells him he's neither. He's, quote, a whipping boy raised by mongrels and set on a sacrificial stone, close quote. Xander just nods and says he's getting a cramp and stands. So he doesn't seem phased by this at all. But when he stands, he's suddenly in Giles' courtyard. And I like that transition because while Snyder certainly was never fatherly to Xander, a principal school principal could be seen as a father figure so we had Xander in his basement looking up the stairs toward where his parents are then we get Snyder and now he is in the courtyard of his father figure Giles who a couple scenes ago just told him that he sees Spike as a son now Xander sees someone or something crawling and growling a few paces away, but kind of behind some of the shrubbery, so he can't quite see it. He rushes into the apartment. Giles, Buffy, and Anya are standing over Willow, who is gasping, and Buffy says she can fight anything, right? Clearly worried, and then says maybe they should slap Willow. They all ignore Xander. So he goes again through the school hallways. Now he's in Buffy's dorm room. He hears growling again, races through another hallway, and is back at the basement. So we're 25 minutes, 16 seconds in. And if you're thinking Xander's dream seems really long, it is really long. It is the longest dream of the sequences. There's more pounding above. He stares up at that door at the top of the stairs and says again, that's not the way out. The door bursts open, and a man appears and asks, what the hell is wrong with Xander? So this is Xander's father, and he says, you won't come upstairs? What are you, ashamed of us? Your mother's crying her guts out, and he stomps down the stairs. And he tells Xander, the line ends here with us, and you're not going to change that. You haven't got the heart. He thrusts his fist into Xander's chest, The arm changes into one wrapped in what looks like white rags or bandages or gauze, the same arm that slashed at Willow. And there's a quick flash of dark hair over a face painted with white. And we cut. This is a ways past the midpoint of the episode by minutes, but it is the end of the second dream. So in a sense, we could see it as that reversal because now we have two friends of hour four who've been attacked and this attack is both more violent and it it feels more devastating because this is at least in the beginning of the attack it's Xander's own father doing it at 26 minutes five seconds we cut to Xander on the couch gasping the camera pans to Giles and we zoom in on him and cut to a commercial When we come back, Giles swings a pocket watch in front of Buffy's face. She's seated. It's rhythmic like a metronome, and he tells her to focus on it. So it's very much like that scene in Helpless for Buffy's 18th birthday when Giles hypnotized her so that he could give her drugs to weaken her for that cruciamentum ritual. Buffy questions it but he tells her this is the way men and women have behaved since before time. For a second she focuses on the light but then she laughs in this way that reminds me of Faith in Buffy's body when she was kind of unhinged and laughing. We cut to a carnival, Buffy in pigtails and overalls pulls Giles by the hand, and he is walking with Olivia, the woman friend who came to visit him a couple times during season four, and she's pushing an empty baby carriage. I couldn't quite tell. I've seen references to Olivia being pregnant in that scene, and I I couldn't quite tell if she was meant to be or not. Olivia asks if Buffy always wants to train this badly. Giles says it appears she never heard the fable about patience. And when Olivia asks which one that is, we get another of my favorite Giles lines. He says, well, the one with the fox and the um, uh, less patient fox. Buffy finds a game with a vampire uh, behind a coffin saying, I am a vampire, and kind of bobbing up and down. She throws a ball and misses. And Giles reminds her she has a sacred birthright and don't stick out her elbow. The second time, she hits the vamp and turns to Giles for approval, but he tells her he doesn't have any treats. Buffy gets cotton candy, and when she turns, her face is covered with gray mud like a mask. And Giles twice says, I know you. Spike calls to them to come over to his crypt. Inside, Olivia is crying, sitting next to the baby carriage knocked over. And the scene shifts to black and white, and there are old-style news cameramen around Spike, snapping flash photos as he strikes classic vampire poses. And he tells Giles he's hired himself out as an attraction. As Giles looks instead at the distraught Olivia, Spike tells him he has to make up his mind. He's wasting time. Hasn't he figured it out yet? As Giles leaves the crypt, the cheese man appears now with the cheese slices on his head and says he wears the cheese. It doesn't wear him. And I feel like the cheese man emphasizes that these dreams are all connected and all dealing with the same thing because he is, other than whatever is stalking them, he is the one thing that appears for all four of them. Now Giles walks into the bronze. He grabs a vampire book. Lots of people in the crowd. Willow and Xander are on the couch going through different books. Xander still has that stab wound. Anya is up on stage and she's doing a comedy act and telling a joke about a man and a duck walking into a doctor's office, but she forgets parts of it. The crowd jeers at her and Anya does not care and just says, quiet, you'll miss the humorous conclusion. I feel like Anya would be a great stand-up comic because nothing would throw her and her her very manner is, is funny because of that. Willow tells Giles this is his fault, but he responds that they have to think of the facts. Also, he's been very busy. He has a gig himself, a reference to the times we have seen Giles singing and playing music in this season. Willow ignores what he says and tells him it's some primal or animal force. And in the background, Anya, there's no sound, but she's acting out the man walking into the doctor's office. And then her sound comes on again, and she says the punchline about there's a man attached to my ass. And she gets a lot of laughs, and then she explains to the audience that it was the duck, not the man that talked, which also seems so Anya to do. Willow tells Giles he must have some sort of explanation. And at 30 minutes, 8 seconds in, Giles starts to sing. There's applause and piano music. He gets on stage and then a full band kicks in. And he sings entirely what he would say when he's giving exposition and explanations and tells them the spell they cast with Buffy must have released some primal evil And he tells Willow to look through the chronicles for some warrior beast. And the audience, including Willow, they hold up lighters that are lit as he sings. And Giles says Xander should try not to bleed on the couch. He just had it steam cleaned. Then he sings No Wait and feedback screeches through, interrupting him. And he starts following the microphone cord and gets down on hands and knees to crawl into backstage. It's very quiet now. And he finds this tangle of black cords. And underneath it is that pocket watch from the beginning of the dream. And he says to himself, well, that was obvious. It's dark back there, but there's a flash of light, and we see poised above him a young woman, dark-skinned, dressed. She's in white, but they're almost like rags or gauze wrapped around her, holding a weapon, growling, and her face is painted white. Giles says he knows who she is and he can defeat her with his intellect. And he says, I can cripple you with my thoughts. Of course, you underestimate me. You couldn't know. You never had a watcher. But as he speaks, she puts a knife to his forehead. We don't see the cut, but we see the blood dripping down as she scalps him. And we cut to Giles in the living room, passed out. His hand is shaking and he drops his glasses. And we cut to a commercial. So we are about three quarters through the episode at 32 minutes, 13 seconds in. We return with a close up on Buffy sleeping in the living room. This is where in a more traditional story, we would see the last major plot turn that should grow from the midpoint and take the story in yet another new direction. Does this grow from the midpoint? Um... Only in the the loosest sense, it certainly is a progression in the story because Willow and Xander don't understand what is chasing them and Giles has figured it out and he has hinted at it being the first slayer and now we're going to go to Buffy who is the one who will fight the first Slayer or her spirit, whichever it is. Buffy is sleeping in the living room, but we cut to Anya whispering her to wake up and she's sleeping in her dorm room. Buffy tells Anya she needs her beauty sleep and she turns onto her back and above her, the first Slayer is chained to the ceiling and looks down and growls. Buffy awakens in her bed at home, For a second, she seems relieved, but then she's not in bed. She's standing in front of it. It's unmade. And she says she and Faith just made it, a reference to the dream from season three when she and Faith were talking and making the bed. Tara's there, and she asks, for who? But Buffy thought Tara would tell her that and asks where her friends are, and Tara says Buffy lost them. Buffy looks at the clock, which shows 7.30, but Tara tells her that clock's completely wrong, and she tries to hand Buffy cards like the ones from the spell with the manis card the hand card which represented Buffy on the top and Buffy says she's never going to use those and Tara responds you think you know what's to come what you are you haven't even begun now the bed is made and Buffy looks puzzled and leaves to find the others and Tara says be back before dawn and I should say, we'll find out later, Tara is a representative in the dream. She is speaking the first the Slayer's thoughts later. So it could be that is supposed to be what she's doing here as well. Buffy's in the hall at school. She sees a wall with a small opening with bricks around it. The rest is painted. So it's like someone paused when they were almost finished. Joyce is inside. Buffy's worried about her mom being back there. It seems dirty. Joyce insists she's fine. She made lemonade and Buffy should go find her friends. Buffy says they might be in danger, clearly feeling bad about leaving her mom. Joyce laughs and then says it's because mice are tickling her knees. And Buffy responds, I really don't think you should live in there. And Joyce says, well, you could probably break through the wall. But as she's talking... Buffy catches sight of Xander going up the stairs and walks off. So a a little reference there to Joyce not meeting Riley until just now and also to the moment when Faith is in Buffy's body and Joyce says she'd really like to spend some time with Buffy that Buffy hasn't been around much this year. Now Buffy walks onto a concrete floor. We see only her feet in sandals, which is how we'll see her go from scene to scene. She's in a large room with a long conference table. Riley, in a suit, sits at one end, and Adam, as a human, sits at the other end. He wears dress pants, a blue shirt, and a tie, and Riley says to Buffy, Hey there, killer. A quick personal update. My latest QC Davis mystery, The Hidden Man, was just released. You can find it at lisalilly.com/slash hidden. There are ebook, paperback, and large print editions. Also, I finally have at least the cover for the next Buffy and the Art of Story book: Buffy and the Art of Story Season 2, Part 2. Episodes 12 through 22 how to write about love, pyrrhic victory and betrayal. You can see that on Instagram or Twitter at lisa m lily that's L I S A Amazon Marie L I L L Y or on the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page or by the magic of time travel and podcasting it might be available as a book already in which case you can find it wherever you shop for books or ebooks or at lisa Buffy Books. <laughs> Riley says the debriefing went great. They made him Surgeon General. Buffy's upset he didn't tell her they could have celebrated. Riley says they're busy drawing up plans for world domination. The key element is coffee makers that think. And I couldn't help thinking, yikes, we have those now. And Buffy says world domination. Is that a good? Riley tells her they're the government. That's what they do. And he turns to face her. And now we see there's a gun lying on the table pointed toward Buffy. Human Adam says Buffy's uncomfortable with certain concepts, which is understandable. And he does sound pretty much like Adam, just a little more human. And he goes on, aggression is a natural human tendency, though you and me come by it another way. And Buffy responds, we're not demons. Behind her, very faint, is the first Slayer. And Adam says, is that a fact? Riley tells her they have important work to do. He goes on a lot of filing, giving things names. And this made me think of how the very first dream started with Tara worried about she hasn't told us her name and not knowing if if we're referring to the kitten or we're referring to the first slayer. So we have this name theme. And Buffy asks what Adam's name was. And Adam says, before Adam, not a man among us can remember. And this too made me think of the first slayer who doesn't get a name in this episode although in the last episode when willow did that spell she referred to senea the first of the ones but no one says that name here it's like nobody remembers that and the slayer will tell us she doesn't have a name 36 minutes 13 seconds in all the lights dim a loudspeaker voice says the demons have escaped run for your lives Human Adam leaves because he and Riley agree they have to make a fort and he's going to get the pillows. Buffy sees a bag of weapons at her feet and tells Riley to wait. She has weapons, but her voice is whispery. It's like it won't come out She opens the bag and inside, instead of weapons, finds what looks almost like a liquid concrete mix. It's gray and she needs it and then studies her fingers and puts it on her face. And now it's not grainy anymore. It's it's like mud or a heavy face paint. Riley appears again now in flannel looking more like himself, but he chides Buffy and says he thought she was looking for her friends. He calls her killer and says if that's the way she wants it, she's on her own, which is a callback to Forrest calling Faith a killer and Faith saying, no, she's a slayer. Buffy doesn't know about that, but maybe unconsciously she does because we've seen in her dreams Buffy is connected to all kinds of things. So maybe she's connected to all the Slayers in her dreams. Buffy walks again, concrete turns to sand, and she's in the desert. It's very bright and stark. Her face is not painted anymore. And she says, I'm never going to find them here. Tara emerges. So Buffy's in a sundress. Tara's in this very flowing sort of outfit, similar colors like mauve and pink. And Tara tells her, of course not. That's why she came. And Tara also tells Buffy that Tara was borrowed. Quote, someone has to speak for her, close quote. And the first Slayer appears next to Buffy. So now we're at the climax, that part of a story where our opposing forces have their final clash and resolve the conflict. Buffy says, let her speak for herself. That's what's done in polite circles. The first Slayer circles Buffy as Buffy says this, and now we see her more clearly. She is a young Black woman. Her face is painted white. Tara continues speaking for her, telling Buffy she's asking the wrong questions when she asks about her friends. She also says she has no speech, no name. Quote, I live in the action of death, the blood cry, the penetrating wound. I am destruction, absolute, alone. And Buffy says, the slayer. And the slayer says, the first, which is an interesting ambiguity because the source of all evil in the Buffy verse is also referred to as the first. And that seems like that can't be accidental. Buffy looks at the cards now. She has them in her hands, but she sees herself with her friends in the living room and says she's not alone. When the First Slayer says she does not walk in this world, Buffy protests that she does walk and she talks. So Buffy says, I walk, I talk, I shop, I sneeze. I'm going to be a fireman when the floods roll back. There's trees in the desert since you moved out, and I don't sleep on a bed of bones. Now give me back my friends. This is a bookend to the first episode of the season where Buffy was so alienated from her friends and went off alone to try to deal with things. She didn't share with them how she felt until she ran into Xander at the Bronze. The first Slayer responds, no friends. She's speaking herself this time, not through Tara. She says, no friends, just the kill. We are alone. The cheese man ducks into the frame, shaking two slices of cheese. And Buffy says, that's it. I'm waking up. But the first Slayer dives at her. They fight. In the middle, Buffy says, it's over. They're not doing this anymore. But the first Slayer keeps fighting. Finally, they roll down a hill, one tumbling over the other. Buffy says, enough. She wakes on the carpet in her living room, sees her friend. so we think the dream is over, but then the first slayer lunges, lands on top of Buffy. She's thrusting her stake, but it's going into the carpet, not to Buffy, and Buffy kind of rolls her eyes and says, it's over, okay? I'm going to ignore you, and you're going to go away. You're really going to have to get over this whole primal power thing, and Buffy gets up and walks to the couch. The first Slayer looks exasperated and Buffy says you are not the source of me. Also in terms of hair care you really want to say what kind of impression am I making in the workplace because and now Buffy really wakes up. I wasn't sure where in the course of these dreams to talk about this portrayal of the first Slayer. I find it disturbing because of the imagery and the words that are used. One place where there's some discussion of it is on the site theconversation.com. A revamped Buffy could rectify the original Slayer's problem with race. It talks about the lack of representation in the show and also says this About this episode and the First Slayer. Quote, but while she belatedly gave a woman of color a central role in the mythology underpinning the series, her portrayal was deeply primitivist. End quote. And I I feel like that really hits it because we keep having throughout this episode these references to the warrior beast, an and animal primal, primitive. Um Whedon in his commentary will talk about the primitive. This slayer, until the very end, doesn't speak for herself. She says she has no name, and she is black, and Buffy is white. And Buffy makes this comment about her hair in the workplace. There are all these issues that we're so much more aware of now about white beauty standards being the the reference for what's professional in the workplace. Buffy has the long, straight hair. Buffy, even at the beginning of this scene, says, I need my beauty sleep. And I feel like probably that was unconscious on the part of the writers here, but it's still really disturbing. I I do think the reason the first Slayer is Black is because she is supposed to be from among the first humans, and humans evolved in Africa makes sense and I think the problem is you can have a, a primitive first slayer. but what really highlights the problem here is that you don't have enough other representations of people of color we do have some we have Olivia in this episode but she's only been in a few episodes we've had other black characters we had Kendra um we had mr trick but it is predominantly a white world so that makes it even more troubling to have one of the few black characters who is important be a representation of the primitive Now that Buffy is back in her living room and awake, we're in the falling action section of the episode. This is where we tie up loose ends, resolve any subplots, and we definitely get that here. At 41 minutes, 36 seconds in, all the friends wake up. We then cut to them sitting around the dining room table talking about the first Slayer, who Xander says was, quote, not big with the socialization, close quote. Giles says joining with Buffy and invoking the First layer's power was an affront to the source of that power. And when Buffy mentions he could have told them that before, he says he did. He said there could be dire consequences. Buffy points out, yes, but you say that about chewing too fast. Joyce appears, uh, not in her red robe and negligee now, but in a fluffy robe and says she guesses she missed some fun. Willow responds, the spirit of the first Slayer tried to kill us in our dreams. And Joyce says, oh, you want some hot chocolate? Think how far Joyce has come from that moment when she first saw Buffy and Spike dust a vampire. When Joyce says Xander's name, he says, what, Joyce? And then awkwardly switches to Buffy's mom. He agrees to help her with the hot chocolate, calling her Buffy's mom again. Buffy's a little spooked still and says she never really thought about the first Slayer. The others agree it was intense. And Buffy says, well, at least you all didn't dream about that guy with the cheese. They exchange glances. Then in the hall upstairs, Buffy looks into her room. It's in shadows. The bed is made. And she hears Tara's voice. You think you know what's to come, what you are. You haven't even begun. Buffy walks away and we end on a shot of the empty bedroom. In his commentary, Joss Whedon said he decided to do this episode the way he did because two seasons in a row, they ended with a huge finale. And this time, he wanted to do it differently. So we had the finale, the two-part finale in The Yoko Factor and Primeval. And this was a coda to season four and an exploration of the four key characters, And he said the running theme is the primitive, the first slayer attacking each one in their dreams, but it's really more about who each character is. Whedon also said this was a big departure for him because he is very, very structured and usually can't write unless he knows exactly where he's going, which tells me a lot about Why I love Buffy so much, because that is the kind of story that appeals to me, uh, as you might have guessed, one that has a strong story, strong structure, but then also develops the characters, has important themes and so forth, but, but really has that structure. Here, he said it was so different, he had to just let it flow, free associate, make the images fit the characters, and he said he found it very liberating. He also said that he knew a lot of people were not going to like it. With Willow's dream, he commented that he didn't notice that it started out talking about names, particularly letting something tell you its name. Versus later on, Riley and Adam are going to find things and assign them names. And he said on the internet, a viewer pointed out that this was a good representation of the difference between feminine and masculine approaches. Whedon also said the misdirection in Willow's dream is that a lot of viewers probably thought Willow's disguise and fears of being found out related to her sexuality, but we discover it's really that Willow still feels like a big nerd from high school. He also said that the cheese man didn't mean anything. He put it there because there's always something in a dream like that that just has no meaning at all and that viewers spend a ton of time trying to figure out the cheese man and he feels like that means what he did was successful because it suggests that on some level viewers get the rest of the dream sequences So I always thought that it did mean something until I heard the commentary. I thought it related to a young adult book called I Am the Cheese by Robert Cormier, where the main character is so isolated, all his family is gone, and he's often singing The Farmer and the Dell verse with the cheese stands alone so I read all the significance into it I've mentioned before Robert Cormier's book The Chocolate War in the band candy section and I, I still would so love to ask Joss, Joss Whedon if he read Cormier's books because I wonder if despite him saying that he just stuck the cheese man in there for no reason whether on some level he does draw from those books but I doubt I will uh, get to ask him that ever he also commented on the gender roles in the backstage interaction, specifically that part where Giles listens to Riley when he says props, but previously told Harmony that props was the wrong answer. In Xander's dream, Wheaton noted that Xander dreams about all the characters in a sexual way. Um, He doesn't comment on Buffy not being included in that, but he does talk about Willow and Tara and Joyce, and he said it was really fun having this scene where Christine Sutherland got to be very sexy and that so often on television, mom characters just never get to do that. He said that when Joyce asks if he's really looking for comfort, that reflects the love that Xander does not get from his mother, which I find interesting since we never see the mother in the dream, but the father does say something like, your mother's crying upstairs and you're ashamed of us. Whedon also commented that Xander's journey Always leads back to the basement because one of Xander's sense of failure, but two because he's afraid of something there. And I'll talk about that a little more in spoilers. Xander watching himself in the ice cream truck from afar is him seeing that he has no future and it symbolizes his sense of failure. And I really like this. Whedon said, it is Xander's point of view of himself. And maybe part of why I enjoy this episode more than a lot of people do who really prefer a structured story, as I do, is I am intrigued by dreams. I used to belong to a dream interpretation group we met for years. And we didn't do it in a, you know, look in a book and see what a dream means. Although a few of us had books like that, we almost used it as a group therapy. We would write down one dream that we brought in each, usually once a month or once every two months. And the other people would help us figure out what we could learn from it by asking questions. So I I do find dreams intriguing in the way that they reflect our daily lives, but also sometimes can help us sort things out. We said some things that are kind of obvious by the dialogue that Xander feels everyone's ahead of him. They're speaking a different language. And basically, they're growing up. And he can't figure out how to do that, how to be an adult, or why it is such a struggle for him. And he said the evil father in Xander's home is a real life problem that is at the heart of Xander's story, which is emphasized when that father rips out Xander's heart. And he said the two things for Xander are he can't get out of the basement and he can't stop being a Harris. On Giles' dream... Of course, Whedon comments on Giles being the father figure and Buffy being the little girl. And he says Giles' problem is that he can't decide who he wants to be. Should he go off and be a real father, which is symbolized by Olivia and the carriage? Should he be a rock star, or should he be the guy who gives exposition to Buffy and her friends? And Whedon said exposition, but I I do think he meant, should he be the guy who continues to guide Buffy and her friends? And he said the bronze scene brings this together because he basically put Giles' living room in the bronze because they're sitting there on Giles' couch. And then Giles sings the exposition. So we mix the rock star and the exposition guy. I found Whedon's comments on Buffy's dream the most interesting. He said that that scene with Riley and Adam at the conference table, that this is Buffy's fear of what Riley might be underneath, evil corporate CIA guy, and that it shows their relationship is not entirely stable because Riley doesn't walk in Buffy's world. And I have throughout the season been thinking of it more especially when I looked ahead to season five more as Riley struggling with that that who is he without the initiative how does he fit in Buffy's world he doesn't have enough of a role but I hadn't thought about it so much from Buffy's perspective this fear that Riley just belongs to that other world and will never walk in hers with her. He said it also shows that American guys don't understand the feminine mysticism of the slayer and that the pillow fright reference is a reference to men playing their games And that the mud in the bag, Buffy puts it on her face and he says, you can see once it's on there that what shows through is this primal demon within Buffy and Riley walks away because he can't handle that. And that the overall point is that the Slayer is a beast, must be alone, but Buffy rejects that. She, in contrast to the Slayers that came before her, has a full life, she has friends, she has interests, and her struggles to be Buffy and not just the Slayer is what makes her the stronger Slayer. He didn't comment on how that relates to Faith. I think that would be a really interesting interesting discussion because Faith wants those things. She envies Buffy having the family and the Scoobies as friends and the boyfriend. And yet we we don't see that come together for her. So I don't know, maybe maybe that would be a good thing for a Patreon bonus episode to really explore that. Whedon commented on the fight with the first Slayer in the desert when Buffy says she's had enough, that that is part of what ends it. And we think the dream is over. And then there's that classic twist of, oh, nope, we're still in the dream. And he says that the reason Buffy, she has realized she's dreaming, she's had enough. And then when the Slayer attacks her in her living room, she just rolls her eyes and gets up and walks away and and has really had enough. And he said some viewers saw that as anticlimactic. And it was, and that was the point, that the more mundane Buffy is, the less Slayer-like, the closer she gets to waking up. And he said that Buffy defies the tragic tale of the Slayer and puts an end to it overall Whedon said he had fun doing this episode maybe the most fun he's ever had but he emphasized it was not a game he was not playing with the fans at that point he was pretty sure the show would be picked up for the next season but even if it wasn't he thought it would be a good way to end because he really delved into each of the four key characters I am not sure if I agree that I would have liked that as an ending. I also think I'm unusual in being in the middle of the the viewers on this episode. I think most people either love it or hate it, like patron Steve who said worst Buffy episode ever, or people who tend to love abstract and dream sequences really like it. And I don't fall in either camp. As I said, I enjoy the exploration of the dreams because dreams do fascinate me. And I feel like it does connect in many ways to the entire series arc, which I'll talk about a little more in spoilers. It's it's clearly full of foreshadowing, and it does move the story. At the same time, usually, I've mentioned this before, I'm in the camp of tell-a-dream-lose-a-reader, that most readers and viewers, they don't want to sit there and spend a lot of time reading about or watching a dream that ultimately doesn't change the story. And in Buffy, the dreams do work because they move the story forward and of all the dreams in Buffy these probably do the least of that I think there is some movement but it is not the way that we see Buffy's prophetic dreams actually move the plot significantly in the episodes where they appear other than talking about the spoilers and foreshadowing That is it for the episode. I hope you will stick around to hear about the foreshadowing. But if you don't, thank you so much for listening. I hope you will come back in two weeks when I'll do a season four overview and look at the entire season story. If you'd like to apply the story structure I talk about in Buffy and the Art of Story to your own writing, you can download free story structure worksheets at writingasasecondcareer.com slash story. And we are back for spoilers and foreshadowing. There is so much here, so I I can only hit the highlights— Tara's comments about how Willow doesn't know everything about her, a reference to the events in the next season in Family, where we'll find out that Tara believes that she is part demon. That's why she subverted that spell in Goodbye, Iowa. And so I find it interesting that there is that hint of that here when we are also hinting at Buffy's the slayer power and the demon nature, possibly, of that. Willow saying she's very seldom naughty and she doesn't know what's after her. I feel like this is great foreshadowing for Willow's arc with magic because later in this episode, she'll be the one who says to Giles, it has to do with the spell we did. But in this episode, she's saying, oh, I don't do anything naughty. It can't be anything I did. And there's a little bit of of denial there and we'll continue to see that more and more with willow that ignoring of the consequences the danger to herself of her magic but also the consequences to others and and the dark sides of that Whedon's comments about Willow he mentioned specifically her fear that Tara and Oz together are looking at her realizing or seeing oh she was just a big nerd and in season six when Willow is struggling with magic she says something I think it's to Buffy about why would Tara want her that she met Tara when she was already a witch, and why would Tara want her otherwise? What is there about Willow? And she says, Tara didn't even know that girl, of the girl in high school who didn't do magic yet. So you see how tied this is to Willow's sense of self worth, and that this is a real fear that plays out. For her when she tries to contemplate what life might be like without magic, but also that Tara would somehow find out that Willow is not the person that Tara believes her to be. The part about Spike being like a son to Giles, and he's also wearing that kind of tweed suit in Tabula Rasa spike is wearing a disguise and it's a tweed suit and he mistakenly he and giles both mistakenly think that spike is giles son when they have all lost their memory so definite foreshadowing of that season six episode xander telling buffy she can't protect herself from some things as she's sitting there in the desert i see that as foreshadowing buffy's death she can't protect herself from death and she will go on a quest and see the first slayer spirit again in a dream in the desert where she's trying to understand more about the slayer more about herself she feels so disconnected from everything and that's when the first slayer tells her death is your gift and Xander is saying this to Buffy while she is sitting cross-legged in this desert so I see that as a reference to Buffy's death Whedon's comment about Xander's greatest fear being he can't get out of the basement and he can't stop being a Harris and we saw Xander keep saying that's not the way out when he's looking up out of the basement and also his his fear of his parents and him being ashamed of them his father said you're ashamed of us All of that comes back in season six in Hell's Bells when he leaves Anya at the altar partly because he fears who he is. He fears becoming his parents and that he can't escape it. That's a huge theme for Xander and a huge foreshadowing. And of course, Anya saying, I'm thinking of getting back into vengeance. And it's right after she asks Xander, does he know where he's going? And Anya will choose to become a vengeance demon again after Xander leaves her at the altar. And he doesn't know where he's going. That's that's part of the issue. Anya asking him that in the dream is very significant and reflects, I think, something Xander is sensing about Not just his life, but their relationship that Anya is going to need more. And he fears he won't be able to be there for it. I love Giles singing the exposition. It foreshadows the musical episode in season six, one of my favorites. And Whedon commented on that as well and said that's part of what gave him the idea to do it. Joyce behind that wall... I see it as somewhat foreshadowing her death, her being not part of Buffy's life, although Whedon said that that was not primarily the reason for it, that it really was more symbolic of that part of Buffy's life being walled off as she pursues other things. And then, of course, in Buffy's dream, also, we have so many references to Dawn, be back before dawn, and and a a number of others, and there was... um, a previous reference to Dawn in a dream in the Buffy-Faith dream when Faith talked about little sister coming and also little Miss Muffet. So this is uh, just building on all that foreshadowing. And Whedon said that for Restless, Michelle Trachtenberg, who plays Dawn, she had worked with Sarah Michelle Gellar before. I looked it up. That was on All My Children. And she came to the set to watch. And that's when Sarah Michelle Gellar suggested that Joss Whedon have – Michelle Trachtenberg read for Dawn. So that's kind of neat that in the first episode where Dawn's name is spoken, that's when Michelle Trachtenberg came to the set. I just, I thought that was cool. I also think the chain in Buffy's dream around the first Slayer when she's chained to that ceiling foreshadows the shadow men, chaining the girl who becomes the first slayer and forcing the demon energy on her of course we have buffy's looking at that clock that shows 730 which is a callback to that dream where faith talks about counting down from 730 and at that point it was 730 days before the episode where buffy would die because that was season three so again we see that 730 clock reference buffy's it's over okay i'm going to ignore you and you're going to go away this is where i see some movement in the buffy series arc and buffy's personal arc because at the end then tara says you think you know what's to come what you are you haven't even begun words that dracula will say to buffy in the beginning of season Five, and I think all of this relates to had Buffy not had this dream and her friends not had this dream she might not have recognized what was happening in that first episode and been moved to embrace learning about her history and asking Giles to be her watcher again it's because of this dream that she starts to understand that the first Slayer really does matter to her. She said she never really thought about her before. Well, here and then in the pilot of season five, Buffy does think about it and she recognizes she wants to know. And Dracula tells her that some of her power is like his. It's rooted in darkness like his. And I feel like before Restless, Buffy would have just rejected that out of hand, quite possibly, or it would have taken a lot more for her to say, yeah, I need to explore that. And Spike will play on that in season six, this idea that Buffy's power is rooted in darkness and she should be in the darkness with him. So in that sense, I feel like these dream sequences do just a little bit move the Buffy series arc Last thing, Whedon's comment that Buffy defies the tragic tale of the Slayer and puts an end to it. I am so curious whether he knew what the end of season seven would be. At the time he recorded this commentary because I think the commentaries were recorded before the series finished. I could be wrong about that. But I am wondering about it because Buffy does put an end to the tragic tale of the Slayer in season seven. She ends the whole one girl in all the world and the way the Slayer line passes and not getting power until the previous Slayer dies That is it for this episode. Lots to talk about here for an episode I know many viewers did not like. I hope this was helpful in sorting through whether you loved it, whether you hated it, what was intriguing about it. And again, thank you so much for listening and a special thank you to patrons who support the show. I hope you all will come back in two weeks for the next episode where I'll cover the season four story arc as a whole. If you're enjoying Buffy and the Art of Story, please write a review, share it on social media, or tell a friend. You can find the show notes and back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalily.com slash Story. You can find the book editions of Buffy in the Art of Story at lisalily.com slash buffybooks. You can also support the podcast on Patreon and get access to bonus content. Follow the link in the show notes or go to lisalily.com slash Patreon.